Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our UH Ventures Health Voyagers podcast series. I'm Matt Zanker. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month this May, we decided to feature a fascinating conversation between our managing director, Kip Lee, and vice chair of the Department of Psychiatry and chief medical officer for behavioral health for population health at University Hospitals, Dr. Patrick Runnels. We talk a lot about demystifying innovation, and I think you'll hear a concrete example of how innovation can have a real and immediate impact on patient care. But more importantly, a big part of mental health awareness is demystifying and destigmatizing mental health and treatment. Listen to the end to see how Dr. Runnels uses a classic 90s comedy to inform the relationship that he seeks to have with his patients. I hope you'll all enjoy. Over to you, Kip. Thanks, Matt. I'm excited to talk to our guest, Dr. Pat Runnels. Pat is the Chief Medical Officer, Population and Behavioral Health, as well as Vice Chair, Department of Psychiatry at UH, Cleveland Medical Center. He's been a great collaborator with our team, uh, the Ventures team, and is also a student and practitioner of human-centered design, as we've often collaborated on a variety of workshops uh, in his role with Pop Health, as well as Department of Psychiatry. Welcome, Dr. Runnels, a pleasure to have you. Uh, Today, we want to have a conversation with Pat, not only because he's a super cool dude, uh, but also to illustrate a real-life case study of how design and innovation intersect with and impact the way we care for patients, uh, as well as uh, caregivers. Uh, We thought it was especially fitting to record this uh, or have this session with Dr. Runnels Uh, during Mental Health Awareness Month, uh, May. And um, so let's get started. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Runnels. A pleasure to have you with us. Um, I want to start off by asking, what's the difference, if any, between mental health and behavioral health? Uh, Notice that behavioral health is part of your title. And I've often heard both terms almost used uh, synonymously, but would love to have some clarification on how Uh, you interpret and practice these two, or maybe it's the same thing. Can you clarify for us what the difference might be? Sure. And uh, Kip, thanks so much for uh, having me on. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, And as always, an honor to work with your very cool and innovative team. Um, So uh, behavioral health broadly is, you know, one term that gets used a lot. Um, You know, when you think about how uh, we talk about mental health and uh, everything that kind of uh, is around that. There's actually a, a lot of debate in the field as to what the right term to capture everything is. Uh, broadly, behavioral health is one common term, and it generally means uh, it generally refers to all things related to mental wellness and illness and substance use disorders. So it captures all of those things in one term. Um, whereas uh, health or mental illness typically is a little narrower, uh, certainly referring a little more to mental health issues as opposed to issues related to substance use. Um, you know, just to fill that out a little, uh, I'm a psychiatrist. Psychiatry is the study of mental disease, uh, and, uh, psychology is the study of behavior, which includes mental disease and other things. So there's kind of a big umbrella, little umbrella thing there. Um, and so psychiatry is part of behavioral health, but obviously not everything we do 
is about uh, people suffering from specific disease. It also includes prevention. It also includes, uh, you know, um, avoiding the kinds of things that would create mental health problems down the road. Uh, how do you uh, how do you kind of increase your wellness so that you're doing well in life in general and maintaining that you know that side of behavioral health broadly is uh, aimed to be kind of this bigger uh, umbrella than just focusing on people who have a specific disease like say schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, and nationally, it's of note, uh, there's one of the major national advocacy organizations, uh, the National Council on Behavioral Health, just changed its name to the National Council on Mental Wellbeing. So there is a lot of debate actually as to what the right phrasing is. Uh, that's maybe a longer answer than you were, you were looking for, but uh, it gives a little context to the, to the weirdness. Yeah, no, that, that's super fascinating. And, um, you know, especially as we're giving uh, attention specifically this month to mental health, um, it uh, very um, timely as we're still going through uh, the pandemic globally. Um, have you seen a prevalence? Uh, we've read a lot about this being such a topic for many of us in your own you know, practice, uh, in your own community even, have you noticed a prevalence, a noticeable one in terms of mental health uh, issues during the pandemic or due to the pandemic? Yeah, so there's actually been a couple of uh, pretty big surveys that were put out um, and, uh, showing uh, a couple of things. First, early in the pandemic, we knew that anxiety and depression went way up. Um, so when uh, they did a bunch of surveys in June of last year in 2020, um, we uh, identified that about 40% of adults in the country, uh, and this was several thousand people that were surveyed, were reporting that they had uh, symptoms of anxiety or depression or some kind of mental health uh, wow. issue. Um, that didn't necessarily mean everyone was suffering from a specific disease, but people were struggling. That was the broad message. Um, those, uh, we had an increase in the rates of people who were thinking about suicide, uh, children in particular, uh, had a pretty, pretty marked increase in, uh, uh, having contemplated, uh, hurting or killing themselves. Um, certain age groups were more, uh, having a tougher time than others. We know that disadvantaged communities, uh, whether it's economically or socially disadvantaged communities were struggling a whole lot more back in June. We have since then seen uh, surveys come out uh, in uh, later, uh, actually uh, January 2021 is the most recent I've seen, that showed that that prevalence hasn't gone away. Still mm -hmm. about 41% of adults are reporting symptoms of anxiety and depression. That's about triple to quadruple of what baseline is, by the way. Wow. So prior to the pandemic, those numbers are way, way up. That doesn't mean everyone's got such bad anxiety or depression that they need treatment. But it is to say, when you go and ask people that same question, four times as many are reporting mental distress. That's reflected also in increased rates of alcohol use and drug use. So we've seen a 15 or so percent increase uh, in everyone's consumption uh, of uh, alcohol or illegal drugs. Um, we have seen some increase in suicide rates as well. Um, and so we know people are suffering. That's not even a question. We know that suffering started at the beginning of the pandemic in a way exist beforehand. And we know that's persisted as the pandemic has gone on. Um, it's important to frame that. We've also known that over the last 10 years, indices of behavioral health have shown that people are more distressed than they were, say, 20 years ago. Um, while some of that uh, may have to do with uh, uh, our, our being more effective at uh, kind of surveying people and uh, actually getting people to talk about mental health issues, 
we have a sense that uh, we've seen a lot of this happen as economic rates of economic distress have gone up and that predates the pandemic. Wow, 40, 41%. That's such a striking number of the population. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you tease that out as a professional practitioner? Are, you know, for example, are some of those cases um, things that will naturally course correct once, I guess, things start to get better? Um, or does everyone or the bulk of the, that population, do they need to be seen with, you know, by a professional such as yourself to get help? How do you tease that out? That's such a, there's got to be more uh, in that 41, 40% uh, in terms of just people who might need help versus the amount of folks who might be able to help. Uh, so how does that work from a systems you know, perspective? You know, it's, you know, so I, I'll, I'll make this kind of rough uh, comparison. If half the country broke their hips and needed a hip surgery, yeah. we'd nowhere near enough hip surgeons to do that work, right. right? We'd be in trouble. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, uh, you know, we've long known, <clears throat> and there's been, a, you know, a, a lot of documentation of this, that we are, we have, we do not have enough mental health and behavioral health workforce to meet need prior to the pandemic. We were understaffed by about uh, 50%, meaning we only had about half the workers we needed. And when you add to this in, if we if 40% of people in the country are struggling, that account that amounts to something like, if I got my numbers right, about 150 million people, um, we're not going to get all those people in uh, for, for, for treatment, right? So what that means is that we have to focus on uh, population level uh, and prevention strategies and wellness strategies that people can... Uh, kind of execute on their own, um, and uh, and then use and, and then make sure people know when they're struggling and those things aren't working. Whether you know how to, how they can get in for care, um, you know, when a professional would be a lot more helpful, um, you know. And so in that instance, you you mentioned one thing, which is it is absolutely true that some amount of people are suffering distress as a result of specific circumstances. And as those circumstances get better or improve, we would expect their mental health and mental distress to resolve. Um, at the same time, um, for a lot of people, even the resolution of the stress isn't necessarily going to lead on its own to the distress going away. Because if you've been in a stress situation for a very long period of time, your body doesn't just shut off all of a sudden. A lot of, for a lot of people, those issues will continue. For a lot of people, you know, when you think about what the distress is about, people have lost jobs. They've been displaced yeah. into from one career to another, they've lost social connections, they've had to move. There's a number of stressors that, um, and, and adaptations people had to make that are creating distress that aren't necessarily gonna go away even as people can get away from social isolation. All of that speaks to a need to do something in the country that we have as aggressively as well as we have had in the past as we should have, which is we need to figure out how to get a lot more messaging out there as to how people can deal and cope with mental distress. Um, because again, not all these people are going to get in and it turns out lots of what can't, there's a lot of things that can help for a lot of stuff that don't require seeing a professional. Um, you know, things like uh, learning how to use mindfulness and do mindfulness exercises. How do you, you know, how do we teach people sleep hygiene so that sleep is better even when they're feeling stressed or disrupted? How do you maintain social connections? I've done a ton of uh, kind of little news uh, show interviews talking about how to um, uh, uh, stay, how to practice positivity. 
Um, I've done things on how to, you know, how to avoid social media, which is a major distressor for some people, or how to, shall I say, re- you know, make sure that you're regulating your use of social media that prevents you from being increasingly distressed by that, right? So there's a lot of things and think, uh, that people can get through educational videos or opportunities to watch interviews. We can, can and should push this information out a lot. And a lot of it can be really, really helpful. It's not perfect if you're in a stressful, distressing situation. It's not like it's going to totally go away. Um, but there's a lot you can do to minimize a, a lot of the distress for a large, large number of these folks. At the same time, there's a lot of folks who are struggling. One of the weirdnesses locally for us has been we knew that distress right when the pandemic started. I cited that evidence from June of 2020. We did not see an increase in mental health service utilization. Uh, for a number of months after that. We just started seeing uh, an uptick in uh, service utilization this past uh, January, February is when we started to see that increase in demand, which is to say that's when people finally started reaching out. That tells us though that a lot of people who were, for instance, thinking about suicide were not reaching out for a number of months. Mm. That's a different problem, right? We had a problem in which people didn't understand when they were having really significant symptoms, how to get in and get help with that. Um, that's a systemic design problem, right? That's an issue where people don't recognize these issues as either being things that would benefit from help or from knowing how to go get that help. Oh, wow. Well, the, uh, that lag factor is fascinating. I mean, how much of that is due to, in your mind, you know, taboo, social, um, yeah, social taboo and, uh, has there been some silver lining on that maybe, of late because people, there are more people maybe realizing that it's not just them, it's other folks as well. Has that helped to, has the pandemic and the prevalence, I guess, of uh, mental health uh, issues, you know, helped to break down some of those taboo barriers? Uh, So, yeah, yeah. So, so stigma of mental health and substance use disorders, I would say substance use disorders even have a lot more stigma. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a very real thing, right? That's, uh, you know, uh, there's stigma, by employers, there's stigma by family and friends, there's stigma by society at large. Um, you know, I like to talk about all the time, there are a, you know, when, just when you talk about the depiction of psychiatrists and, and, and uh, popular culture, um, the negative depictions of psychiatry and psychiatrists are far outweigh um, uh, positive depictions. Um, you know, I, I talk about Hannibal Lecter being a, a kind of uh, maybe one of the most recognizable uh, psychiatrists in pop culture, and that's not that's not necessarily a good 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 look for our field. Um, but um, but to that end, so we know that's a major cause. Been really encouraging over the last say twenty years. Uh, national organizations like the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the National Alliance for Mental uh, Mental Illness. Uh, National Council on Behavioral Health, a whole lot of them have done a lot of really targeted public uh, uh, kind of education campaigns. And there has been a notable decrease in stigma, which is to say, we've known for a while that stigma is a major, major factor. We also know over the last two decades, we've seen that stigma decrease. point you made, um, one of the things that I've been heartened by is I am regularly giving talks to groups or doing kind of uh, interventions. I have colleagues that are doing interventions with groups. People are far more willing to share their distress. Um, mm-hmm. When half the country suffering, um, yeah. it becomes much less taboo because that means one out of every two people struggling, yeah. right? I think we have seen that. Um, 
you know, other barriers are maybe a bigger issue. This is also, this is a silver lining of uncovering things, but it turns out it's hard to go in and get healthcare in general. There's copay barriers, there, you know, cost sharing barriers, there's whether or not something's covered, there's the distribution of mental health professionals is not necessarily uh, comport with where the population of people who need help is. So if you're in an urban center, you're gonna have a little bit of an easier time than if you're in a rural area uh, getting access to care. At the same time, we got virtual care now. One of the major cool side effects of the COVID was uh, there were all kinds of federal regulations uh, actually uh, uh, really limited the, the scope of, yeah. of care. And we, we now, they get, they get rid of all those and, and we access, you know, went way up as a result of that. Um, so now instead of having to take a half day off to come in and see me at an office that's maybe a 30 or 40 minute drive, you can take your lunch break and see me, uh, you know, you can take that later or whatever and see me and it's only an hour of your day and you can kind of get that in, uh, in an environment that works for you. It's really increased people's willingness to come in and see us. So a lot to think about here, right? Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, you mentioned the, the potential negative connotation or association with psychologists and psychiatrists. Yeah. I recall during the pandemic, um, dentists, I think it was in England, I don't know if it actually crossed the Atlantic, but there was an article or a set of articles where I saw people looking forward to going to see their dentist because they were uh, just excited about getting out of the house. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that might be a healthcare professionals who are, you know, uh, maybe more of a dramatic swing than any, any, anyone else in terms of just negative perception to yeah. something positive. Yeah. Hey, no, good for dentists. They've needed that. They haven't had there. There's not been a lot, you know, uh, when you got to put a pick on someone's tooth, it's hard to make friends. And so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Th uh, those things have, no, there's absolutely an increase in people. Um, the positivity about going out. One of the things we talk a lot about is visualizing the future. So when the pandemic hit, we didn't know what the future was going to look like. Um, a lot of distress there. You don't know, you know, what do I invest my hope and my positivity in? As we've gotten vaccines that have been wildly successful beyond anybody's expectation, and you know, and uh, the pan, the, you know, the kind of worst parts of pandemic isolation and fatigue are starting to. We're starting to see the end of this, right? Um, people can now start to plan for the future, and that planning that even if I can't do it today, I can, in a month I can go do it, or in two months I'm going to be able. You know, that can have such a huge impact on people's mental health. Uh, you're seeing people just joyful about, I went to a, you know, a restaurant and sat outdoors, but I didn't have to wear a mask while I ate. That was huge, right? Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk about some of that future um, facing uh, hope and optimism, as well as uh, something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, systems or systemic issues. And how do you address that from a systems design or systems innovation standpoint? Uh, I think it's worth noting that there is an article that's coming out uh, with yourself. Uh, I, I'm, I've been you know, included, so thank you for that, and some other colleagues at uh, university hospitals uh, coming out tomorrow in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine Catalyst. Uh, and uh, it's around design thinking applied to um, specialty referral, uh, really as a case study. Um, but you know, some of the things you're talking about reimagining these kind of uh, traditional uh, inherited processes, rethinking how we can design for system needs as opposed to, you know, fragmented uh, uh, addressing of, uh, of, of solutions. Tell us uh, a bit about the article that's coming out tomorrow and um, how has your design enthusiasm and learning to date informed 
uh, that work and um, the, the work uh, that sits as the case study uh, at UH. So uh, I'm glad you brought that up. The article that we uh, are publishing was really very simply saying access to psychiatry isn't good. It was hard for providers to refer to psychiatrists. It's harder for people who, you know, to get in and see us. Um, and remember, these are people who had identified needs and were happy to come see us. Um, the pathway to getting them an appointment and having them show up uh, to see me was, you know, poor. It was poorly designed. It was, um, and, and so a lot of people who needed help weren't getting it. Um, we simply endeavored to sit down and say, what if we redesign the process um, with the consumer in mind, the person who has a mental illness person referring to us, what if we just redesigned our process for that so that it was a great experience and so that it enhanced the uh, opportunity for them to come in and get help? We talk a lot, you know, healthcare providers across the spectrum, when you're sitting in front of me, I'm doing everything I can to work with you and get great, great outcomes. And all of us, you know, who, who get in this field have, you know, share, share the, those feelings. But when you're not in front of us, I'm spending very little time thinking about what it means to get in front of me or what it means to make sure that you have the things you need when you're not in front of me. That's an area we have spent very little time on, uh, as many people who are on the show can, can, can kind of imagine or have experienced. Uh, once you're not in my office, there's a lot more that's on the shoulders of the, of the patients and of the individuals you know, that, that are seeking care. So we see, sought to, un, you know, un, to kind of look at that a little differently and we created a model using a human-centered design process that said, what if we redesigned this in a way that really worked for people and met their needs in a much more effective way? Um, and the results we got showed uh, amazing results. We found out that huge amounts of need could be met with a small number of psychiatric providers being available, just being available within seven days. Um, and that um, we, the, the, we could meet those needs very quickly, thus remaining open for new people to come in and, and, and get our care. And patients loved the experience and providers loved the experience. And we were not overwhelmed or we did not drown in, uh, in care that we couldn't kind of execute and deliver on, which is to say, by making small changes in those referral pathways, we actually became more efficient at managing health issues in a quicker way so that we were open and available to help the population at large. It's one example of one of the most exciting things over the last year and a half has been this real shift in attention by healthcare providers, but by mental health providers in particular, towards designing the system in general. Um, so much, uh, you know, we know how to help people. It's that people aren't getting help. That, that, that help isn't being implemented in a way that people have access to. And so this uh, energy around, well, what if we redesign systems so that they serve people better has been one of the coolest and most positive side effects um, you know, of what we're doing. And so we're now in a place where we're starting to think about um, reimagining substance use, you know, care for substance use disorders uh, around the idea of longitudinal care, as opposed to you go into a rehab for 90 days and then you get out and you're on your own, right? Um, and we're thinking about what it means to um, uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, proactively looking at data to figure out when people are starting to have trouble, as opposed to waiting to uh, when they end up in the ER having tried to kill themselves, for instance. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of things are huge changes in how our field has always thought. And it's been really exciting to get involved with that. Uh, the paper is just one small uh, experiment in that direction, but that the New England Journal got excited about it and wanted to publish it tells us that there's a pretty big change in how uh, healthcare providers in general are, are approaching this work. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the uh, exciting components of that article, I think it comes out tomorrow, hitting the stand virtually tomorrow, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is um, 
this uh, this framework of of you know the patient and specialist uh, interactions and engagement, this journey that they have together, this almost a dance, but then it it's nested or embedded as part of a larger system. And um, you know, the, the I think the figure there's one uh, I think figure uh, at the beginning of the article that really il illustrates that idea of the journey within a journey or a story within a story, a system within a system. Uh, and it also is tied uh, to the uh, interaction coordination of the caregiver. So uh, you mentioned it, it's not just a win for how we can uh, rethink the delivery of care for our patients. Tell us about the interactions among the caregivers. Uh, you mentioned that they were excited. Were they excited from the get-go or did it take some you know, work uh, it was a gradual. Did it have to build some momentum and steam? How did you get those caregivers working together uh, uh, on the backstage and maybe on the front stage of the experience as well? So uh, the first thing to say is when a system exists, everyone's invested in pieces of the system as it is. And when you start to talk about change, um, people you know, people talk about uh, everyone being afraid of change, but people are really afraid of loss, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, I think that's really important. Uh, the second, you know, and when I say that, the second thing to recognize is when you're in, in, introducing changes, uh, change happens at the speed of trust. That's a, a, a quote that was attributed to a company who was a big quality uh, improvement uh, uh, <clears throat> guru in healthcare a while back. So change happening at the speed of trust um, means that you have to build trust and to recognize and help people understand that the change is going to be a benefit to them instead of the change is going to take things away from them. Because people see what they're going to lose. <clears throat> it's much harder to understand or imagine uh, what you're going to gain. In this case, the primary care providers had very little to lose. They, they already had terrible access. And so we designed a system that was, it was easy to get them on board. Hey, what if we got your patients in, in seven days? And what if we made it a one-click referral? Uh, that, you know, and, and the only thing that they had to agree to do is to take patients back to manage care if we gave them instructions. But the benefit for them was so good that it really took like two conversations and, they, you know, a bunch of people raised their hand and said, I'm in. Mm -hmm. um, on the psychiatry provider side, though, it meant um, not screening people in a certain way. And it meant trusting uh, in a lot of things where the system hadn't been very trustworthy before. So it wasn't unusual because a stigma that we mentioned earlier that someone with a behavioral health issue would come to us. Um, and then pr primary care wouldn't take the patient back um, or they come to us and the system wouldn't necessarily be well set up so that we could have other people come help with the care. That took longer. And so I, we had to start by getting a group of what I would call innovators who are much more interested and much more excited about the change to start piloting the program and then make sure everyone see it. That was a that was more like a two-year process. So it took us wow. two years to get the rest health providers on board with this. And now they see the benefit and they see how this is working out for them and for patients and they're totally excited about it. Um, mm -hmm. But that that took some work and being able to put that kind of pilot up so that they weren't part of it, but they could see it, that was really, really key. Mm. So someone might say, well, that's, that's just good process redesign. And maybe, you know, there's a, there's a big chunk of that. What made it design? What, what's, what is, what is it about the work that made the work, uh, I guess, a, a design thinking or human-centered design framework. You mentioned trust, uh, yeah. but curious if, if you've got additional thoughts, because when we think about design in healthcare, you know, we might think about, you know, signage redesign or designing the user interface of a certain software product. 
you're talking about designing for trust at a much larger scale and maybe in some ways uh, the softer elements of human interactions, connections, and relationships. Not that there wasn't some concrete, visible uh, products that were made, but how, 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 why, why design uh, to describe this work? So we have a lot of experience that tells us that the patient's experience of their healthcare journey is pretty core to them both and deciding to engage in, in healthcare in the first place and then following up and in, you know in implementing um, uh, you know uh, uh, treatment recommendations that experience is awful for a lot of people in a lot of places and you talk about um, and that experience isn't going to change um, the signage alone isn't enough you have to start with the interface between the providers the different providers that are involved with that and, and, and the patients themselves. Uh, you know, when we talk about implementing a, you know, a, a new thing in behavioral health, we often talk about, okay, there's a new treatment and we want to implement a new treatment to get better results. Um, but we rarely talk about, there's a whole lot of great treatments uh, and they're not implemented. What the heck happened there, right? This, re this recognition that we had all these great products lying around that no one was using, essentially. That's behavioral health. We have all these great interventions. And most, you know, one of the stats um, that will surprise people is more than uh, less than 50% of people who have an identifiable, treatable behavioral health issue get any treatment whatsoever for that issue at all. It is 11 years on average when someone has a behavioral health symptom before they end up in treatment for that behavioral health symptom. There wow. is something wrong with the entire patient journey if that's the case. Mm -hmm. The other piece of this is we know most of those issues come to light in a primary care setting. So for us, it was, if we have this patient journey experience that is that dismal in terms of getting people engaged and getting results, when we know how to get results, if we get them engaged, then patient engagement and the patient experience has to be front and center with that. And we then went in and dug around to understand those numbers a little and found out that, well, if our referral process is bad, the rest of it doesn't matter. If you can't even get in to see us, that's where it starts. And so it was kind of for us starting there and then recognizing we had a lot to build on and we have learned a lot. We've, we've done a lot of other redesign efforts within there um, since we, we made this initial uh, initial uh, kind of uh, design project uh, go into place. But that, that to me is maybe the best answer to the question I can give you is, boy, the patient experience matters so much um, to adherence to outcomes. You have to focus in that regard and that's at the center of human human-centered design. Yeah, no, the, the idea of being intentional about uh, the journey, the services, the experiences makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think you also uh, cover in the article, you know, the idea of iteration and prototyping, which is oftentimes, you know, when you're designing a product, you prototype, you put out there a draft, so to speak, that's not fully mature to get feedback and have others participate to co-design and it strikes me that that's where a lot of the trust occurred, where people recognized, hey, you know, we don't have to uh, have the full, you know, 100% working solution. I can contribute to this and make something more improved uh, and something that doesn't exist quite yet. So um, there are, I think, uh, a lot of interesting elements. I'm, I'm looking forward to rereading the article when it comes out. Um, here's some topics or themes that you're noticing whether it's tied to learnings through through the pandemic, but you know maybe it could even be personal research areas. Uh, are you noticing some trends uh, that are picking up 
uh, as you know, things are hopefully getting better from a society level or just anything that excites you that uh, you want to bring our attention to uh, as it ties into mental health or innovation around mental health. So I'll, I'll hit on two areas that are kind of not per se related, but <clears throat> the first is in mental health, there's this uh, a, a much increased interest in how, how do we reach people in new and different ways? <clears throat> and one of those is, um, you know, the, especially younger generations are a lot more facile with communicating digitally and what we call asynchronously. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there's been a huge explosion in how do we redesign uh, engagement and treatments uh, so that people can access treatments and on their schedule in a way that works. Like, so can you do uh, psychotherapy through, um, uh, uh, email for, for lack of a better word, uh, can you, or, or texting, can you, um, can I supplement what I'm doing by you have an app that has a lot of exercises that normally you have to come in the office to do, but the app can take you through those things. Um, I'm not saying any of this has been well developed yet, but there's been a lot of attention of how do you reach people differently? If we know that with the majority of people never get to behavioral health providers in the first place, even if we make the system awesome, we, and we also know that there's not enough providers around, then we've got to do some other things. We've got to be able to scale certain interventions so that they're reachable by everybody and in a way that they'll want to kind of interact with. So a lot of investment in technologies and new ways of kind of providing care have really exploded over the last five years. They've been accelerated by COVID. Um, and I think you're going to see some really interesting, cool ways that people are uh, getting uh, treatments out to folks. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, in terms of new evidence-based treatments, people I'm sure have seen this in the news, or some of some of the people have. Um, we started to figure out that uh, what we used to think of as uh, purely as drugs of abuse or recreational drug use um, are starting to have some really interesting uh, benefits for people, particularly with post-traumatic stress disorder, ecstasy or MDMA. Uh, is uh, one one such substance that it turns out given in very specific ways uh, under very you know in time limited uh, uh, circumstances and under the guidance of uh, of, uh, of duly trained therapists and, and providers, um, it turns out it can have a pretty big impact on post traumatic stress. Some of the worst pieces of post traumatic stress disorder. Um, it's still not quite done yet, but there appears to be enough accumulated evidence to suggest. We may have very new and very cool and innovative ways in a very controlled setting to start to really impact uh, trauma, uh, which is one of the most common issues in behavioral health is how do you get over terrible things that have happened to you? And, and uh, those kinds of things impact people. And if we've got these new answers, it's been really cool and exciting to see that we, we, we might have really figured some stuff out uh, mm -hmm. with things that we currently, we used to think of as purely uh, 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 hokey. Yeah. yeah. Well, hokey and harmful, right? You know, like, yeah. And, and, and I think it's worth noting that this is not a broad endorsement of using illegal drugs, nor is it a, uh, nor is it suggesting that um, it's all, you know, it's it's all just to have a trip and you get better. Um, right. But I do think that there's a lot of emerging evidence that we may have really uh, discovered some uses for certain things that can be incredibly helpful to future generations. Yeah, interesting. Like, uh, you know, you're talking about the emergence of psychedelic or reemergence of psychedelics in a more, uh, you know, clinical evidence-based environment. Uh, I think, uh, was it, you know, one or two weeks ago where maybe it's been around for a while, but these departments like Johns Hopkins really setting up an office and a position for yeah. this. Yeah. Um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting for sure. Um, There's a quick thing I have to say in here, because this always pops up. We've been thinking about this for marijuana for years. We have absolutely no evidence that marijuana does anything for anybody in the mental health field at all. And mm -hmm. yet I can't tell you how many people come in and say, marijuana is really helping me. 
mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is to say, um, we've looked at marijuana a lot and it is not compelling. So I think it's worth noting that not every drug of recreational drug that has this kind of myth of being helpful helps. Um, it's exciting that uh, a couple of these drugs uh, happen to have evidence, but uh, it's it's been interesting to see that dichotomy too, because I think people, the homeopathic uh, kind of uh, seeking out of answers has led a lot of people down the marijuana road. It's been legalized in a lot of states. Um, I don't want to speak to the evidence outside of mental health, but there's just not a lot of evidence that it helps anybody with anything regarding mental health. In the state of Ohio, um, you can get mer- medical marijuana to treat PTSD, which has no evidence whatsoever. Um, and so it's just worth noting that there's a lot of importance at kind of understand, having professionals who understand the evidence and helping you out. And at the same time, as you said, you were probably going to start to see academic departments when the evidence is really there, starting to get this stuff up and running. Um, we use ketamine. Uh, it's a street drug people often refer to as special K. Um, that's one that actually can treat depression. There's a lot of stuff out there, and we're going to start to see a lot more of this. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's end with one very important question. Um, you mentioned the perception around psychiatrists, and I don't know if you said also psychologists, the uh, the persona being a Hannibal Lecter. Um, uh, what persona would you prefer that people uh, consider when they think about you as well as uh, your colleagues? Is there some other persona that uh, is uh, better suited for us to consider in association with the practices of uh, mental health and behavioral health? Um, are you talking about like a movie persona? Like, can I come up with a character or just kind of a rough idea? A movie character, fictional literary character. Who should we think about instead of Hannibal Lecter when we think about getting help from uh, Dr. Patrick Runnels? You know, uh, this is uh, probably a lot of people listening to this haven't seen it. There's a movie called Dave with Kevin Klein, where Kevin Klein's a doppelganger for the president of the United States. And uh, his job before he gets wrapped up in all the shenanigans is to help people get jobs. Um, and it's about relentless optimism. If mm. I know uh, most behavioral health providers I know are relentlessly optimistic about people's uh, ability to do better in their lives, the opportunity to uh, you know, uh, think about resilience as something we can nurse and grow within people. Um, you know, when I see people, I start almost all the time hearing the stories of loss and trauma and suffering. Um, and it can be overwhelming. You hear some really difficult stories from people, but that's really once you've gotten through that first visit and people start engaging, what you then get is their recovery. That journey of recovery is such a big deal and it's such a huge inspiration to do mm-hmm. the work. Um, and it, you know, after you get over that initial hump of hearing the tough things, as you emerge on that journey, it becomes this hopeful sense of partnering with them and helping them get, you know, to get their lives back in order. Most psychiatrists and most psychologists and therapists think of themselves first and foremost, not as people healing disease. We think of ourselves first and foremost as people helping people live the best lives that they can. That's how I'd like people to, you know, and really maximizing that. Um, it's not to say that my main tool isn't to stop suffering from disease, but it is to say that our identities are really tied in this idea that we can make communities better and that we are, you know, and that we're really interested in seeing the world uh, be a brighter, more happy and optimistic place. I, I'd like to see people see us that way. And oh, I, I love I love that. I love that. I mean, you, you started by sharing with us that, you know, some of the vocabulary or nomenclature labels are still very much, uh, you know, dynamic right now. And well-being is one that you introduced uh, early on. And uh, that seems to resonate very much with the persona that you just um, outlined for us. Pat, this has been um, fun always. Uh, Thank you very much. And um, it's a great, I think, um, 
showcase of, you know, um, understanding what we've all been going through in a better in a better light. Uh, certainly, a way to not celebrate but acknowledge how important this topic is during this month. But hopefully, uh, you know, continuing on as we look towards some kind of this pandemic, uh, as well as appreciate your um, description and sharing of how you've applied design and innovation to your own work. Um, thank you very much and look forward to connecting with you again. Kip, thanks so much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and I appreciate everybody listening. Yeah, thank you. Matt, uh, back to you. Thanks, Kip. Thanks, Dr. Runnels. And thanks everyone for listening. As a reminder, please follow UH Ventures on LinkedIn to get to know our team, see some of the stuff we're working on, and also to keep up with new episodes of this podcast and other events that we have coming down the pike. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.